Hi, welcome to Leonard Lopate at large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Boy, uh, I was hoping something like this wouldn't happen, but well, uh, broadcasting from my home, we can only hope for the best. Uh, in his uh, 2007 best-selling book, Bringing Nature Home, University of Delaware professor Douglas W. Tallamy alerted his readers to an urgent situation. Wildlife populations are in decline because the native plants they evolve with and depend on are disappearing. And his solution was to plant more natives. His new book, Nature's Best Home, takes his argument a step further, as his subtitle, A New Approach to Conservation That Starts in Your Yard, suggests. He joins us now, along with one of our show's regulars, Pete Morosky, owner of Native Landscapes Garden Center in Pauling, New York, which specializes in plants that are indigenous to a specific locale or to the local horticultural zone. And I'm very pleased to welcome both of you back to our show. Hello. Hi, Leonard. Hey, Pete. Hi, can you Leonard. hear me? Douglas. I can hear you. Yes, we can hear you, Leonard. Can you hear I'm us? I'm hearing my guests. Oh, we hear you. Oh, you hear me. Okay. Douglas, let me begin with you. You begin your book with President Theodore Roosevelt looking over the Grand Canyon in 1903, and he says, leave it as it is. I can't imagine our current president having a similar reaction. <laughs> Hasn't a lot changed over the past 116 years? Well, unfortunately, yes. Um, but it hasn't taken that long. I mean, if you look at the Nixon uh, administration, they started the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, Endangered Species Act. So um, it's really on. He created the EPA. And the EPA, right. All of which are in danger right now. So, mm. yeah, we can go downhill pretty quickly. Well, you say that TR had a somewhat schizophrenic relationship with nature. He did. He did. Uh, he loved to hunt. Um and that was, that was typical of his time, really. When you were, uh, your experience with nature was to go out and shoot it. And um, most people, uh, Aldo Leopold did the same thing. Uh, it really, it, it, we had to get past that mentality before we realized you can't shoot it forever. It's going to disappear. Um, so, so Teddy was a bit schizophrenic, but he did a lot of great things. So. But you, you also cite Aldo Leopoldo as a pioneer in the kind of thinking that you're engaged in. And more recently, Edward O. Wilson, uh, you call them the dreamers. Yeah, they each had a dream. Um, although dreamt that we'd actually establish uh, what he called a land ethic. We could, we could use the land without destroying it. And that was a big dream because humans have never been able to do that. Although now that is about the only option left to us. And Wilson has a dream of, of saving and preserving ecosystem function on half of planet Earth. And it's he, he, uh, he wrote a book called Half Earth and described the science that, that supports that claim. If we, if we destroy ecosystem function on more than half the Earth, uh, it's not going to survive anywhere. Uh, so presumably we want it to survive because we depend on it. Uh, and his dream yeah. is to actually create that. And he's still with us. Um, he is. But he's actually, you cite, yeah, he's over 90 now. Turned turn 90 this summer, he, yeah. He didn't uh, a man with a very long name, Friedrich William Heinrich Alexander von Humboldt, write about the interactions of species in the early 19th century? Yes. Uh, and as far as we know, he was the first, the first to articulate it uh, in, in a way that the world actually appreciated. He was the, the outstanding scientist of his time. Um, we've kind of forgotten about him, which is too bad, but... 
he realized it wasn't simply the number of species that are in an ecosystem that counts. It's how they interacted with each other. We call it species interactions, and, um, and that's a very important concept today. Because a lot of people say, well, we're bringing in a lot of foreign species, and, and that's okay. But they're not interacting with our native species the way native species do. And, and Humboldt would have recognized that and say, no, this isn't going to work. And we're talking about around 1800. He's also the first person to discuss continental drift, human-induced climate change, and other things that have become big issues today. He was way ahead of his time. So let's talk about what you're proposing here. Uh, are you proposing a grassroots approach to conservation in this book, uh, uh, one that's immune to whatever the, the latest government policy might be? Yes, that's exactly what I'm proposing. Uh, Are we at a crisis I, I, point? Uh, well, the longer we wait, the worse it gets. Um, you know, I don't. I, this book is about hope. It's not about gloom and doom. And as as I've demonstrated, my wife and I have demonstrated at our home and many other people across the country, we can turn this around. You simply have to put the in in um, supporting the food webs that support the the animals that run our ecosystems. We have to put them back into our landscape. We have to reduce the area that's in lawn, which is not doing any of the vital things that every landscape has to do. And these things, uh, you know, this, this is really not hard. It's not labor-free, but we don't have to invent anything. We, you know, we're not waiting for new technology. We simply have to plant the right plants. Pete, Douglas's first book has been described as a wake-up call uh, because it made the case for do-it-yourself habitat restoration by replacing the common, often invasive plants that most people have in their yards with natives that feed the bugs, that feed the birds. Are, are the people who come to your garden center aware that we are facing a serious problem right now? Well, a lot of them are, uh, and more so now than ever before. But where Dr. Tellamy goes into the science behind it, uh, here at Native Landscapes and Garden Center, we look at the practical application behind it. So we take a lot of what's going on, uh, you know, in the science world, and we try to apply it to our customers and try to educate them in this whole uh, uh, Native Landscapes uh, uh, ecological way of uh, landscaping and do it from a yard-to-yard -yard standpoint since uh, we've gotten to a point where many of our uh, properties are postage stamps, and uh, especially here in New York City, where people can make a difference if they, even if they do it on a on a, on a hundred square foot piece of property. Well, the standard for most folks is a well manicured lawn with a few trees for shade and a flower bed with some shrubs and annuals. Um, many of them, in fact, uh, exotic ornamentals that are imported from other parts of the world. Uh, do your clients express? Any concerns about doing something good for the environment? Are, are they open to changing their changing things? Well, most people that call me are already halfway there. You know, um, you know, I can tell you one of the smartest things I ever did was name my company Native Landscapes because right now it's so in vogue that you know we get calls from all over the country, and we try to do the best we can. But you know, we're centered here in the New York metropolitan area, so we focused our attention on what's going on right here in the Northeast. And uh, yes, there's definitely a movement in this direction and it's gaining momentum by the day. On your previous visits to our show, you've suggested that we consider shrinking the size of our lawns. Don't many local governments insist that people maintain uh, a, a large, well-kept lawn if they have the space? 
Well, I think, you know, I deal with a lot of homeowner associations and, and a lot of groups like that, and I think that mentality is starting to change a little bit. Uh, you know, I, you know, I'm all for a little bit of space to, like I said before, to play football, baseball, and soccer. But beyond that, it should be more ecologically friendly. You know, uh, meadows seem to be the big thing these days, and they're a very tough thing to establish, but you've got to understand the science behind it. And just uh, understanding the, you know, microclimate and the soils in your yard. We have many different soils here in southeast New York State, and if, you know, you pick the wrong plant for a limestone soil like we have here in the Harlem Valley vein of limestone soils, which is very uncharacteristic for a rainy climate, uh, you can waste a lot of money. Douglas, how do we know what plants are appropriate to any given area? Because I'm assuming that a plant that's indigenous to New York isn't indigenous to Oregon or Wisconsin or Arizona. Well, you're absolutely right, Leonard, and I'm lucky to be living in an area right now where there's still a lot of woods and there's still a lot of native habitat. And by looking at what's going on in some of the more natural areas or areas that haven't been touched that much, you can get a sense for what's going on. Soil tests are a very big thing for us. Uh, we do a lot of soil testing. Uh, you know, like I said, we've got uh, unusual soils here, and it changes through every mountain valley. And, you know, uh, uh, are they wet soils? Are they dry sto soils? Are they uh, adjacent to rocks? You've got to do the whole science behind um, uh, what's going on in, in, in a property and then try to do the best you can to come up with a, with a group of plants that will thrive and, and work in that particular environment. And Douglas, tell me, uh, you suggest planting trees, preferably oak trees. Why? Why oaks in particular? Well, we've we've ranked plants in terms of their ability to to support the insects that actually drive the food webs, and woody plants do that more than herbaceous plants. Uh, so, uh, if you look at the top rankings, um, woodies are up there. But in 84% of the counties of the U.S., the genus Quercus, the oaks, uh, support more species of insects than any other any other tree genus, particularly caterpillars. Caterpillars are the most important group of insects that are that are um, moving energy from plants to birds and other things. And where I live, oaks support 557 species of, of caterpillars. Now, if you compare that to something like ginkgo or crepe myrtle or burning bush, all these things that we use from Asia, um, they support zero. So um, huge difference there. And if you're trying to, if you want to have a chickadee breed in your yard, for example, you have to have thousands and thousands of caterpillars because that's what it takes to make one clutch of chickadees. And you have to have that in your yard because they're not going to fly five miles down the road to, to the nearest woodland. They can't do that. Didn't you, you train really as an entomologist? Uh, did thinking about the role that insects play in our environment lead you to your current thinking? Yeah, absolutely. I am trained as an entomologist, and um, it actually, uh, my my uh, current thinking all started when we moved into a piece of property in southeast Pennsylvania, which was thoroughly invaded with, with uh, plants from Asia, most of which are, are escapees from our garden. But I noticed right away the our insects were not eating those plants, and that led to um, years of research documenting uh, how, how seriously these non-native plants uh, reduce the available food for uh, other things that eat insects. And I always focus on birds because today they're the charismatic megafauna that everybody likes. We all like birds. But uh, we recently did a study looking at 
at, uh, caterpillar counts in hedgerows that were invaded with non-native plants and hedgerows that were not. And there was a 96% reduction in the, the amount of caterpillar food available for, for birds in those invaded hedgerows. So they become sterile landscapes. And if you look at where those plants are, they're pretty much everywhere. And that's, that's one of the reasons we're seeing these headlines, about 3 billion fewer birds today than we had uh, 40 or 50 years ago. Um, that's not acceptable. That's just not acceptable. And, and the only reason we've gone there is because we think plants are just decorations. Well, they're a lot more than decorations. Uh, we, we have beautiful native plants, but we, we also have to look at the function of these plants or we're going to have uh, ecosystem collapse. We ought to be designing local ecosystems in our yards that enhance ecosystems rather than degrade them. And that's a new way of thinking. You've headed one of your chapters, Restoring Insects, the Little Things That Run the World, a phrase that you took from E.O. Wilson. But you also suggest not just caterpillars, but that we resist trying to kill off mosquitoes with pesticides. Mosquitoes, don't mosquitoes carry a number of diseases? Um, they do. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not here to promote uh, mosquitoes, but, you know, most of the mosquitoes that are causing problems are introduced species themselves. They're invasive species like Aedes aegypti and the Asian tiger mosquito. Um, these are mosquitoes we brought over uh, years ago, decades ago, hundreds of years ago, um, and they've caused a lot, of, a lot of problems. We can control mosquitoes, but we need to do it in a targeted way. Mosquito Joe, who drives down the street and just puts out this general fog, that fog contacts about 10% of the adult mosquitoes. Uh, well, you need to contact and kill 90% of the adult mosquitoes if you're going to actually control the, the population. So the way to do that is to control mosquitoes in the larval stage. And the way to do that is uh, with a, a product called uh, Bacillus thuringiensis. You can get it at the hardware store. It's called a mosquito dunk. And it's this, these tablets you simply put in water and the mosquito larvae eat them and they die and only they die. That's the, that's the key. When you fog an area, you're killing all the insects that are out there. So you've just eliminated the, the bird food that supports our birds. And it's, it's uh, you know, it's hitting a little flower with a giant uh, sledgehammer. That's, that's not the way to uh, get rid of that flower. The pesticides, they, they, they kill all of the insects that they encounter, butterflies, bees, right. and, and other right. pollinators. And you point out that if we lost our pollinators, we would lose 80 to 90% of the plants on the planet. Exactly. Everybody thinks we need to save pollinators for our crops. Uh, and, and some of our crops do depend on pollinators. But the real reason is um, they do pollinate 80 to 90% of the plants on the planet, 90% of our flowering plants. So if we lost our pollinators, that many plants would disappear, and that is not an option, not if we want to stick around as well. And we can't just have pollinators in our parks and preserves because we need those plants everywhere. So that means it's one of the goals your landscape, your local yard has got to, to pursue is maintaining a healthy community, a complex community of, of pollinators. And I'm not just talking about the honeybee. I'm talking about the 4,000 species of native bees that are pollinating so many of our, our flowers. And that's when we get past those woody plants, then we get into all the herbaceous plants that uh, are, are necessary for supporting pollinators from April all the way through November. We've been talking, hearing about a bee die-off. Is it mostly the, the, the native bees that are dying off? 
Well, it's mostly the honeybee that has been measured, uh, and that's got but, uh, problems called colony collapse disorder. But when you look at native bees... But honeybees were imported to this country, weren't they? Didn't they the early European to... settlers bring African bees here? Yes, European bees, yeah. Um, because most of our crops were imported as well. So they were very good at pollinating apples and, and uh, you know, the things that we, that we grow. And they're very good generalist pollinators, no doubt about that. But as I said, we've got to pollinate all the rest of those plants, too. And, and it's going native... to take a lot more than the honeybee to do that. Right, Pete? doctor. And our native bees uh, start pollinating much earlier in the season. Like this time of year, you got... The ephemerals coming up out of the woods, and if it wasn't for our native pollinators, uh, we wouldn't be spreading the pollen on, on some of the early plants, which I call our, uh, our native bulbs. And, uh, you know, and, and then these things are much tougher than the honeybees. They can withstand much colder temperatures, and they, and they go into the season almost into December if it's a, if it's a warm fall going into winter. Don't some birds like woodpeckers eat native poison ivy berries, which are high in fat? Uh, don't that that means we would want those woodpeckers around, wouldn't we? You're right, and we want poison ivy around too. Believe it or not, um, yeah, they make one of the most the beneficial berries in the fall for for both birds that overwinter and birds that migrate because they're so high in fat. Um, I, I often say the the time people get poison ivy is when they try to get rid of it. Um, so just ignore it. It won't chase you. The best defense against poison ivy is learning to recognize those three leaves. My guests are Douglas. But let me, just let me reintroduce the two of you, and then, Pete, you can talk. My guests are Douglas W. Tallamy, professor and chair of the Department of Entomology and Wildlife Ecology at University of Delaware, and Pete Morosky, owner of Native Landscapes Garden Center in Pauling, New York. This is... Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Pete? Yes. Um, since we're on the subject of vines, I just want to touch a little bit about Virginia creeper. You know, many of my customers, for some reason, aren't a big fan of Virginia creeper, and I think it's one of the greatest vines in the woods. I mean, it's, it's got a very beneficial berry. It's got a beautiful fall color, and it grows uh, not too far from poison ivy. They both like the same type of environment. But there are a lot of other vines that are out there, bittersweet and mile-a-minute vine, that are really choking the woods, especially here in southeast New York State. Uh, like I said on the last show, driving down from Dutchess County on the Sawmill River Parkway, there were, there are just woods that are engulfed in these vines, and it's going to take an army of people to, to take care of this problem. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Porcelain berry is another terrible one. But uh, let me speak up for, for uh, Virginia creeper as well. It's a, it's a great plant. It, it will climb your trees without pulling them down, but it also is a good ground cover. And it, it, um, it's a favorite food of a number of our sphinx moths, which are a favorite food of our cardinals. If you want cardinals, one of the best plants for cardinals would be Virginia creeper. Well, right now, we, uh, people are starting to clean their property, if they have property, the beginning of spring. Uh, are there things that they should be aware of? Um, should they be clearing all the leaves? No. <laughs> uh, they should be putting the leaves in the, in the right place. Um, leaves, we call it leaf litter. It, it is the perfect ground cover to protect our soils from heavy rains and from erosion and to protect the really complex and diverse soil um, animal community. 
actually more species of, of animals in the soil than above the soil. Um, we don't appreciate that because we don't see them, and most of them are very small. But they're what's, what's um, recycling nutrients and providing the natural fertilizer for our trees. And every time we throw those leaves away, we, we get rid of uh, the top layer of, of that uh, really productive soil. But, of course, you can't have leaves on your lawn. It's one of the reasons I suggest we cut the area of lawn we have in half. Uh, and one of the easiest ways to do that is put your leaves around the base of your trees and establish a new bed. Then you can get your ground covers or those spring ephemerals that Pete was talking about in there. Um, and it, it, it actually looks acts like a small patch of, of woods. And another really valuable part of, of doing that is that the caterpillars that develop in those trees have to complete their development. And that's usually off the tree. They drop from the tree and they burrow into the ground or they spin a cocoon in the leaf litter. And when we rake up the leaf litter and have hard compact grass under those trees, the caterpillars can't do that. So it's, it's one of the reasons our insects are disappearing. One of the reasons our birds are disappearing is we're taking away the food because we don't treat the land properly. What role do insect decomposers play? You say without them, uh, the, the rapid turnover of nutrients that recycles uh, what plants need to grow would be gone. It would, it would slow. I mean, we still have fungus and bacteria. So Wilson says the earth would rot instead of this rapid turnover. You know, nutrients uh, are always in limited supply. And so, so when they get tied up in a plant, um, they're not available for another plant until that plant dies or drops the tree, the leaves or branches, and then they decompose quickly, and then they're available for the plant to, to uh, use for more growth. So you have this, this continuous cycling of, of nutrients, um, and it's, it's really insects and the other arthropods that are critical in, in running that recycling machine. Pete, you were going to add something? Go ahead. Yeah, Go I'd ahead, like Pete. To add um, doctor, you bring up a very good point, and that's one of the things that I work with my customers on quite a bit is uh, changes in cultural practices. You know, back when I started my uh, landscape business 30-some-odd years ago, you know, the process was to go in in the fall after the frost had hit everything and cut everything right down to the ground and make it look nice and neat, and, and that, was, that, that was felt to be the proper cultural practice. Today... Like you said, Leonard, we need to keep the leaves in place in the fall and keep the stalks of these perennials uh, up until, uh, like right now or in the next two weeks, because, you know, many of our overwintering birds, like our chickadees and our uh, cardinals and our uh, blue jays, uh, depend on a lot of these plants. And, you know, a lot of the bugs that get into the center of the plant that overwinter in these plants uh, need a home, too. So... I think we need to take a close look at, you know, when to mow the meadow, and it, it, it needs to be mowed, like, after the winter, not in the fall, uh, keeping those leaves in place in the fall and, and in the garden and even around the edges of the lawn because so many things uh, overwinter in the leaf litter. And just, you know, be a little messy with your winter cleanups and your fall cleanups, and you'll be doing wildlife a great justice. Your latest recommendation for, for uh, meadows is to only mow or burn a third of it each year so that you have two-thirds that are, that are left untouched because that's the area that's going to recolonize that area you mowed or, or you burned. Not you also say set to... your lawnmower at a, at a – don't, don't uh, cut too much grass, cut it too, too low? Yeah, keep it, keep it several inches high if you can do that, right? 
But, you know, the area, when I say cut your lawn in half, the lawn you keep should be manicured. That's a, a cue for care, and it, it helps you fit in with, with our current cultural uh, um, aesthetics. Uh, it, it's, so you're going to have a neat landscape. It's just going to have a, less lawn and a lot more plants. Right. You, Plant you're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. We'll continue after this. with Douglas W. Tallamy, professor and chair of the Department of Entomology and Wildlife Ecology at the University of Delaware, and Pete Morosky, owner of Native Landscapes Garden Center in Pauling, New York. I'm Leonard Lopate here on WBAI, working with a bit of a handicap because I'm working from my home and sometimes the, the technology doesn't always work out as well as we would like. Professor Tallamy, you point out that all the lawns in this country are equal to the size of New England, well over 40 million acres. Isn't that much larger than the size of all the existing national parks in, in the lower 48 states? Well, all the major national parks, yeah. If you add them all up, it's still less. Well, that's much more than the national parks. But when I say we want to cut the lawn in half, that would create 20 million acres we could play with. And that 20 million acres is larger than most of the national parks added up together. So that's why I talk about we could create a new national park, and if we did it at home, we could call it Homegrown National Park. So it would look a little bit different. It's going to be scattered all over the place, but it would provide vital connectivity with the existing parks that are out there. Right now, in between our parks and preserves, it's no man's land. Almost nothing can live in there. And we, We've got to put the plants back so that we have what we call biological corridors, um, but not just places for animals to move back and forth, places for them to actually live in. So the, the biological uh, corridors uh, would be big enough for reproduction. What, what's the current situation? Are there many no man's lands? <laughs> sure. Drive around and, and look. Um, how many places can a box turtle cross the road without getting squished? Hmm. Uh, and that's true with the snake and everything else. But um, even if we look at just the smaller creatures, it, it all starts with the plants that you have in your yard, whether or not they can use them to, to reproduce their populations. So let's say you wanted to have a, a cecropia moth in your yard, beautiful giant silk moth. Um, you need the right plants for that, that uh, moth to develop on. Um, you want to have fewer lights because the moths go to the lights at night. 
that's actually a major killer of our, our insects or all the night lights we have. If we switch to yellow bulbs, yellow LED bulbs would be the best. Um, or if we put motion sensors on our security lights so they only turned on when the bad man came, um, we could save billions of insects almost overnight. It would be a very easy uh, solution to many of our, our insect decline problems. So these are the types of changes we want to make in those areas in between the parks and preserves where we don't actually have houses. We would also be helping the environment by uh, uh, not having nights on all night long. Sure. I mean, that's that's burning carbon. We don't need to burn. But it, it actually has an impact on the plants. Um, yeah, it can. Uh, I, I'm not uh, certainly not an expert in that area of research, but it changes the photo period. You know, plants and a lot of animals regulate what they do when they do it based on the amount of light that's in the environment. And we create this artificial continuous lighting scenario that uh, they've never encountered in their evolutionary history. You point out that 86% of the country east of the Mississippi is privately owned. 83% of the entire country is privately owned. Uh, right. Is, the 83% is actually, that's we found that it's not correct. It's, it's 73. <laughs> but it is 86% east of the Mississippi. And it's still most of the country privately owned. So that's why you're suggesting that we include private property in any future conservation goals? It's an absolute necessity. There is no way we're going to have successful conservation if we're only looking at 14% of the land um, because those areas are too small and they're too isolated from each other to, to sustain the species that are in them very long. The reason for that is that small populations, when you have a small habitat, the, the, the populations within that habitat are small. All populations fluctuate. In good times, they go up, and in bad times, they go down. So if you're a small population, often in those down cycles, you actually disappear. You blink out of your little habitat patch, and, and um, then you're gone. That's local extinction. So we want large, connected populations that won't disappear even when they fluctuate. Are things any different this year because of the coronavirus pandemic? Well, uh, we're driving less. We're certainly, I mean, what... The pandemic is a very good thing for climate change. Um, people aren't talking about that, but we are, you know, we've slowed our economy to, to uh, you know, very dangerous uh, level. But it's that, that churning economy that generates so much, uh, uh, you know, from the fossil fuel burning, so much of the CO2 and the methane that's causing climate change. So from that perspective, uh, it's not a bad thing. They reduce traffic on the roads. I mean, we're looking at the time right now when, when our toad population crosses the road to get to the near pond, and it's always a slaughterhouse. They're just squished all over the place. Well, this year, there are fewer cars, and there are fewer toads that are squished. They're actually making it. So, you know, from, from uh, points of view like that, it's, it's not a bad thing. Although climate change deniers sometimes suggest that uh, carbon dioxide is good for, the, uh, for plants. And so we shouldn't be so concerned. Well, you know, there's still a flat earth society, too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but I, I, I'm not a member. Uh -huh. So you're just saying that's that's wishful thinking. Well, you know, it's it's telling you half the story. Yes, plants use carbon dioxide. Too much carbon dioxide is not good. And when you radically change the climate, 
when you create a flood that buries those plants for two weeks at a time, like in Houston, that is not good for the plants. So you can't just pick out one little isolated thing and say, we need more carbon dioxide. Um, you, you know, you, you have to look at the entire scientific picture, not just the part that you like. So beside shrinking the lawn, you suggest removing invasive species, and you um, cite the work of a woman named Susan Smith. Right. Susan Smith um, Pagano. From Rochester. Her, her, her married name, right. She has looked at the, the uh, fat and protein content of berries, both from native plants and non-native plants, berries that are produced in the fall. Uh, and we used to think, well, our birds are eating the berries of these non-native plants. That's actually why they're invasive. The birds are spreading the seeds. And therefore, it must be good for the birds. But she's looked at the nutrient content. And it turns out that, that the berry content, the nutrient, the fat content of these non-native berries uh, in the fall is about 1%, very, very low. And the birds are looking for high fat content, as high as 50%. Whereas our native berries, things like viburnum and the parthenocissus, the uh, uh, Virginia creeper we talked about, and, and native dogwoods, um, they do have very high fat levels. Uh, so birds are eating the berries. They're high in sugar, the ones from China, but they're very low in fat. And often they're eating those berries because it's the only berry that's there. When you look at an invasion of uh, bush honeysuckle or, or uh, burning bush uh, you have up there in New England, um, it covers the understory, and the, the native berry producers are essentially gone. So, of course, the birds are eating those berries. But Susan has also shown that when the birds have a choice, they do pick the native berries over the non-native berries. The important point here is that if you see a bird eating a berry, it doesn't necessarily mean it's good, good for the bird. Now, Pete, I'm not all that sophisticated. How would I know what are the native plants and what are the invasive plants? Well, Leonard, it, it's all about education and observation, you know, getting out in the woods. Uh, there's a lot of different apps now that uh, can tell you what a plant is, and you take a picture of a plant, and, uh, you know, it'll tell you whether it's a native or a non-native species. Books, you know, a lot of people are self-taught in this industry, and, um, you know, like Dr. said, it's so important to plant these natives in our yard for, for, for wildlife benefit. And, um, you know, when you're having that conversation about the pandemic, I want to back up a little bit. You know, everybody's home right now. So what a great opportunity to get out in your yard and do a little uh, sketch and, and, and figure out what's growing in your yard and figure out what you might want to do because we all might be home for a long time. And what a great time to start a vegetable garden, uh, a native plant garden. I know, Doctor, you tell a story about... Uh, this woman in the center of Chicago that had woodcock come to her place? Right. She's right next to the to O'Hare Airport. She lives on tenth of an acre. And she has her front yard is cement. I mean, it's just a tiny little patch. So she's just got this little area in her backyard. She, she put in 60 species of native plants, uh, a water feature for the birds, and she's counted, I think it's 113 species of birds stopped by there, including woodcock. She just goes out in, in the afternoon, sits there with her glass of wine, and enjoys the wildlife in her tiny little patch. And this is in the, you know, practically in the middle of Chicago, with no connectivity to any other wild area. Think this about if everybody in the middle worse. of Manhattan did that, Leonard. You know how much wildlife uh, you'd be able to attract. That, to me, would be a quality of life issue. 
Well, they are coyotes in Central Park these days. And there are turkeys on Staten Island. <laughs> Go ahead, Professor Tellamy. I was just going to point out how popular the High Line is. It's one of the, the primary, yeah. premier tourist attractions in, in southern Manhattan. Um, because a little strip of nature. People like that. They want that. Uh, and what's surprising is all the animals that have come to use that little strip of nature. So if you can restore life elevated in the air, on a, you know, a, a five-foot strip of, of planting in, in uh, the middle of Manhattan, you can do it anywhere. The High Line is one of the uh, positive developments, and now it's being in, uh, imitated in cities all over the country. Right, right. Now, you also say that uh, uh, an important approach would be to network with our neighbors. This is not something that you just can uh, achieve by working alone? Well, um, a lot of people say, I just have a tiny property and, and it won't make a big difference. And of course, if you're the only one that does this, you're right. It won't make a huge difference. But you live, uh, your property is attached to another property, which is attached to another property. And that makes up your neighborhood. Um, so in, in combination, working with your neighbors, your neighborhood, or even your entire community, you can achieve a lot of the conservation goals that we're talking about. Everybody can't have oak trees and good canopy trees and pollinator gardens and all these things that require full sun and meadows, and they can't do it all in one place. But if you look at an entire area, you can get all those features in there. So that's why I say work with your neighbors. If your neighbor uh, three houses down has a big oak tree uh, and you've got a sunny, sunny place, maybe you should be working on that pollinator garden to get the diversity of blooming plants in there. And then, yeah, because, the, you know, the animals don't know what our property lines are. They don't care about that. So we're looking at the, the bigger picture. We are, we are the invasive species as far as the animal, animals are concerned. <laughs> that's for sure. Well, I noticed two years ago, I had a lot of monarch butterflies uh, near my house, uh, including a whole bunch hanging from uh, the house, the, the, uh, the caterpillars, the larvae. But now, uh, then last year, very few, and I don't know what's going to happen this year. What causes that kind of fluctuation? Uh, a lot of things. If you look at the the national population of monarchs, it actually was up last year. So I'm a little surprised. We had quite a few down here. I'm surprised you didn't, didn't see them last year. Um, I don't know. What's your, what's your milkweed population? Did that make I have the same summer? milkweed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Milkweed is doing pretty good. But like you said, Leonard, uh, for some reason, the, uh, the monarchs weren't as, uh, as numerous as they have been in previous years. I don't know the reason for that. Do you have it may have to do with other parts of the, the, the country or what's going on in Mexico. Well, as I said, they did, they did pretty well in Mexico uh, the last two years. Did you have mosquito fogging mm. in your street? No. Mosquito what? I... Mosquito fogging. I didn't uh, have mosquito not fogging. Not my knowledge, no. Yeah. Well, it is well, hard uh, to say. So... Uh, you, you're suggesting removing invasives, although some of the invasives are weeds. How do we know that we're actually uh, getting rid of them when we pull them up? Uh, that's a good point. Um, so one of your major invasives uh, is uh, Japanese knotweed. Grows along waterways, you know, miles and miles of it. If you if you pull that up, you get the roots. 
It only takes a root piece the size of your pinky fingernail to start a new plant. So if you just throw that someplace else, you know, you, you're going you're gonna to spread it. And that's one of the ways that it does spread. Um, of course, burning it will, will kill it. But uh, you, you, you don't want to reintroduce propagules or rootstock from these invasives back into the, the wild because then you're just postponing the problem. And you recommend planting what you call keystone species. They are? Right. That's, that's an important thing that we've learned recently. Uh, a lot of people just have this dichotomy, you know, native good, non-native, not so good. Um, and that's a great place to start. But there's a huge uh, difference, huge variation among our natives uh, in terms of supporting those food webs. So I mentioned before that oaks are, are number one, um, um, native, native cherries, native willows, and, and hickories, birches, all very high in that list. But we also have native trees like yellowwood, um, uh, Kentucky coffee tree that support almost no insects. They're native. Uh, we, you know, the, the common tulip tree, which is, uh, dominates our forests in many places because of they're actually regrown cornfields from the 30s. Uh, they only support 21 species of caterpillars compared to the over 500 of, of oaks. So all, all native species are not equal and what they contribute. And what we want to do is make sure we have those top producers, the ones I call keystone species, in our landscapes. And then we can diversify with other species after they're there. I think of them as the, like the two-by-fours holding up our house. Um, we can put the wallpaper and other things in later, but you're not going to build a landscape out of, out of wallpaper. Uh, and that's right. a, it's a new way of, of thinking about it, but um, that's why we keep doing research, to find out these, these things that will help us uh, meet success. Uh, it's hard to uh, to take a drive into the country these days without seeing some dead animals on the highway. And that's because, as you said earlier, uh, we have separated the environments of uh, a lot of species. So they're, they're trying to cross the road to get uh, to their friends on the other side. There's that and there's more more autos every day. I mean, we keep increasing our population. We keep treating the finite earth as if it's growing along with us, but it's not. And every time we add another human to the planet, we're taking away resources for something else. So the dead animals on the road are just one of the symptoms of that. Should we be planting the median strips on highways with something other than grass? That's a really good question. Um, we actually did a little research on that. The problem with median strips is that when they produce the flowering plants, the things that use those flowers, the bumblebees and the native bees, have to cross the road to get to the median strip. Typically, they're not nesting there. So they're going back and forth, and that increases the road of these, these little insects. You don't notice it when you're driving along, but if you actually bike, if you, if you bike along these major roads, you see a lot of dead insects. Mm. So um, it's tempting to say, let's, you know, let's get a lot of habitat into the center medians there because we've got so much area in that um, those places. But uh, I think we need research to to figure out how to do that. Uh, start with each sides of the roads where they don't have to cross the road to use it. Maybe uh, have it uh, one or two car widths back before you actually start these plantings. And that's what road commissions recommend anyway because they want people to be able to pull off the road without being in the weeds. Um, We've got 
four million miles of paved roads in the U.S. So there's plenty of area to start our roadside restoration uh, without having to deal with those median strips. And we learn uh, whether or not that's a good idea. Now, Pete, I probably shouldn't ask you this because you're in the business, but is it better to uh, buy fertilizer from a place like yours or to compost and supply our own fertilizer? Definitely compost, Leonard. I mean, you can use compost as as a lawn uh, additive as in replace of fertilizer. I remember back in the early days of my horticultural career, I worked on a, a golf course up here in the mountains that had velvet bank grass, and we never fertilized these greens. What we did was uh, we air, we core aerified them and mixed sand with limestone and leaf mold. And let me tell you something, you never saw such a beautiful green in all your life if you're a golfer. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of magic in this stuff we call leaf mold. And when you break it down into a compost, it really does feed just about everything, you know. And as doctor said before, you know, it's, it's part of that whole feeding mechanism where, you know, in a year's time the leaves drop, they decompose, they become energy and, and fertilizer for the tree. And if you put the right plant in the right place, and, and and do the right cultural things, um, you'll be dropping fertilizer quicker than you know. And uh, compost is natural fertilizer because it's organic stuff. And it you has, just don't want to put meat in it. N- n- no meat. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's, what it does is it uh, slowly fertilizes. One of the big problems I see out there uh, is people, you know, caking fertilizer around a plant, thinking the more fertilizer they give it, the better off it's going to be, but I'm a big fan of often low-release type uh, uh, soil amendments so that, you know, there's a, there's a slow release of every time it rains, a little bit more nutrients go in the ground. And, you know, you've got to change that with the type of plant you're planting. I have a very tough time uh, establishing mountain laurel in some areas up here, and I've learned that, you know, you really got to doctor the soil up with leaf mold and peat moss and, 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 and create as, as acidic environment as you can with that and blueberries. You know, a lot of people will come to me and they'll buy blueberries and they'll plant them in their yard and they'll be on a slow decline. And, uh, you know, it's time to get in there and really work some compost and, and acidifying uh, soil amendments to the soil so that you're bringing the right uh, cultural uh, soil amendments to that particular plant. You also have to become sophisticated about how much sunlight an area gets and things like that. Yeah, and it's a, it's a fun learning curve, Leonard. You know, like I said before, everybody's home, so let's get out there, let's get the books, let's look into the computer, and let's, let's create a nice little ecosystem and, and, our, and our own little beautiful little landscape right around our, all of our homes. Now, Professor Tellamy, you created a big stir with your previous book. What kind of feedback are you getting from this? This book is just out recently. Right, came out in February. It's been it's been good so far. It's still early days. Uh, as a matter of fact, it they didn't print enough, so it's sold out of the country. Amazon doesn't even carry it anymore because they ran out of stock. Um, so we need to we need to get it uh, out there a little bit more before I can answer that question. But I haven't haven't received any serious criticisms yet. Um, a lot of people seem to be on board. And that's good. Are you concerned that you're not getting the support of not just the federal government but governments in general? despite the fact uh, that uh, what you're telling us is obviously uh, quite reasonable. 
Yes, but you know the climate in this country in terms of top-down regulation. Um, people will be upset no matter what you're proposing if, it's, if they're told they have to do it. It's, I've been focusing on bottom-up uh, changes, trying to convince the people who buy plants um, to go to peat instead of uh, uh, Lowe's and, and uh, get the plants that are going to make the biggest difference. Once we create a marketplace, um, then, then these plants will take off. And from the people I've talked to, I, I don't know about you, Pete, but the, the, uh, it's a growth industry. The uh, native plant uh, movement is, is growing all over the place. Um, so that's where I've concentrated as hell. If states say you are no longer uh, allowed to sell burning bush or, or Bradford pear or some of these other things, and some states are doing that, but um, that we, we have to leave it there. Unfortunately, approach. we have run out of time. Uh, Douglas W. Tallamy, professor and chair of the Department of Entomology and Wildlife Ecology, University of Delaware. His latest book is called Nature's Best Hope, a new approach to conservation that starts in your yard. Pete Morosky is the owner of Native Landscapes Garden Center in Pauling, New York. Thank you both so much for being on our show today. You're very welcome. Thank you, Lynn. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to our executive producer, Jesse Lent, for their invaluable contributions throughout the week. If you're new to our show and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you'll find links to all of our past shows. As I've been telling you all this week, I'll be broadcasting from my home until the uh, coronavirus is under control. And uh, as you heard today, sometimes that is a problem. Uh, but you can rest assured uh, that my staff and I are not putting ourselves at risk. Um, we, uh, we are preempted on Monday and Tuesday for special WBAI programming, but we'll return with a live broadcast on Wednesday when my guest will be Thane Rosenbaum, author of Saving Free Speech from Itself. Have a great weekend. We'll see you then.